she's a good girl Loves her mama, loves Jesus Think safe. It's very important these days. She's it's important. Kids out there. It's important to practice safety, which yeah, I do. I'm wearing, actually do it, but just practice safety. I'm wearing two masks. You know, you're double masking it. <laughs> double masking. Yeah. Like just in case. Glenn, back in uh, his days of Devil's Bowl Speedway. Yeah. Just never. Just in case you run into some heavily tainted particles of COVID. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, you can never be too careful. That's that's been my advice. I um, well, actually, first I guess I'll, I'll welcome episode. This is episode one fifty, so this is a, an historic episode. We've we've done it. Hundreds, it's really in, in technically ways. it's technically I think episode one fifty two, but we over the course of one hundred and fifty, I've lost two episodes. So there was one, well, actually, I guess really we've only lost one because there was one episode around Christmas that was six minutes long and the rest got deleted. And then there was one when we first were experimenting with the Nashville to Texas Skype situation that the Skype uh, recording never materialized and we lost. But yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was the episode where I gave my uh, unprompted, detailed movie review of the Bradley Cooper film Burnt. Where he plays a chef. <laughs> well, now that we're a re- movie slash TV review podcast, maybe we'll revisit that and we'll all watch it. <laughs> Add that Man, to the list. I, no. Yeah, I don't think you really need to. It was it was on my mind at the time, but otherwise it's not too memorable. So you can find me on Twitter at Tommy2 underscore zero. You find me at Glenn3 underscore eleven. And you can find me at point break underscore Dave. So gentlemen, the um, gym still uh, still closed in Texas for you two? I have been to a gym every day this week. <laughs> was it a guy named Jim's house or was it an actual gym? No, I... Um, as you may have seen on my Twitter account, had a little back and forth with Lifetime Fitness due to the fact that I received an odd email from them that was a survey, a one-question survey of, hey, are you ready to come back to the gym? (laughs) That apparently went to all their members. And I filled it out, of course, saying yes. I had uh my wife who's you know on my account also answer the same way i then spoofed the track code on the end of the survey url and (laughs) entered a few more times this is just this is like what glenn said this is bordering on an obsession if you're taking this level to ensure that the gym reopens it was more just a to see if it would work um And then a few days later, this was, I don't know, 10 days ago, maybe, get a follow-up email that says, we have now released our gym opening locations. Every location in Texas is open for Lifetime Fitness, except the four in Austin. Wow. So email the, uh, you know, the gym manager and say, hey, 
what's uh what's going on because they, they didn't even have a date they're like just closed so you so you're not like, exaggerating the entire state was open except for austin yeah like if you went to their website you know you select your state and i believe there's like 25 in texas so like what you're every single one what you're saying is like so the lifetime in el paso wait who are we kidding there's not a lifetime in el paso never mind go ahead sorry <laughs> All the lifetimes in Plano and Frisco were open. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they all they all opened. You know, May eighteenth, we're all opening. No information on Austin. So I emailed him like, "Hey, when are you guys opening?" And he's like, "Well, he gave me some BS excuse of, well, with our uh, local um, whatever mandates or something, we can't open." Which was a lie. He's like, we'll open June 15th. Ah, Juneteenth. Uh, <laughs> but what's funny is the counties we're in, my gym is in, is not Travis County, which is like downtown Austin. So we don't have those restrictions. And like all the other gyms in this area were going to open up on May 18th like everyone else. So I was at the conundrum of wait a month which i've already waited more than i'm comfortable with waiting yeah two days or how are you gonna how are you gonna get big if you wait another month (laughs) gonna get gains bro (laughs) how are you gonna get vascularity if you're at home how am i gonna wear my a t-shirt that says let the gains begin (laughs) Um, so I, I joined gold gym, a whole new membership. I joined a whole new membership and then I went there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning and Wednesday I get the afternoon of, or I guess it was maybe Tuesday evening. I get the email from lifetime. Hey, we're opening up Thursday. (laughs) So I joined golds for three days. (laughs) So I'm assuming so, uh, you had to pay some kind of initiation fee. So how much did all this three-day gym experiments? Was it enough that you could have just bought your own weight set for your house? <laughs> no, honestly, like if it if it had been like you know you got to put you know 200 bucks down and lock into a contract or something like that, I probably would have gone with the home workouts I've been doing. But it was, uh, I think it was. $19 down and you could go month to month for like $36. I'm so I'm out, you know, 55, 60 dollars or something like that. Well, you know, you got three yeah. workouts in. You paid almost like a dollar a minute, but that's okay. Yeah, I was going to say you get paid a dollar a rep. But here I want to yeah. I want to go through cuz Tommy detailed the gym experience he was having in Tennessee, which opened before everyone else. I'm assuming, Glenn, you have not been yet because you mentioned last week that you were gonna you're gonna sit on the sidelines, let things kind of ride out a little bit. Yeah, I'm I'm holding the clipboard right now, but the uh, 24-hour fitness has through the, through their app, you basically register for a time at the given club that you want to go to, and the app is all set up. You can go check out the clubs and pick your time slot, except for in this entire area, there are two clubs that are open and then just a laundry list of closed clubs. Interesting. Well, maybe it's time for you to join another gym for three days. Nah, 
I'm, I'm so, probably sitting this out till June anyway, so I got another week or so. So they've clearly they've let COVID win. <laughs> Unless you live in McKinney or Louisville, and then they are they are against Sharia COVID <laughs> law, but everywhere else, yeah, COVID is taking over. <laughs> if you live in McKinney, life has already beat you down enough. <laughs> um, no, but. I, uh, well, one thing I was kind of worried because I was doing the, you know, Monday morning, go to, go to Gold's, you know, between five and six and, uh, new membership, done it all online. And I was like, I'm going to get there and they're going to be like, oh, well, you have to meet, you know, Joe Trainer before you can do anything. And, or maybe Joe Trahan. <laughs> he comes in at <laughs> noon or something. But what was funny is I got there. And there's like a list or a line of people stacking up and it's all because they had a, uh, like a new, basically like a liability waiver for working out during COVID that I had signed because I signed up online the day before and they'd added it to the membership, but all the normal members like had to wait and fill this thing out. And I was like the one guy that just breezed, breezed through. But so there was actually that many people there that there was a queue forming to fill out the paperwork? There, I think it was just they all showed up right at 5 when Gold's opened. But total, there was probably 25 people there. Wow. I'm impressed um, for, for that early on the first day they're open. There were... Like, you went through your gym's precautions. There was none of that. There was no one taking temperature. There was no forced hand sanitizing oh, there was wait, there, whoa. <laughs> i didn't know where we we're going there oh go ahead <laughs> i mean the there word is, sanitizing is definitely an important part of that sentence construction yeah there's a lot of places that could go that would not be as enjoyable well maybe <laughs> depends but which was, end of it you were on i suppose there was none of that and it was kind of funny. The only, um, I guess, COVID-related thing I saw while I was working out there was, you know, okay, everyone's being better about, you know, wiping down the benches after they were gone. I saw, like, two people were wearing masks. But the funny thing, and, you know, they had the benches spaced out more, but the only interaction with management I saw was there's two guys there, like, working out, you know, their buddies or whatever. And one guy was benching and the other guy was spotting him. And the manager came over and was like, no, like you, you can't be yeah, near him. Out. And then I'm like, so if this guy like just drops it like on his neck, do we all just kind of sit there and look at him? Like, oh, we can't, can't do anything. <laughs> like, yeah, but you can't, you can't be, I mean, you think about the dynamic of that. Some guy, it's like, hey, come spot me because I'm going to put three plates on here. And, you know, by the last rep, he's all out just firing Expelling, particles yes, everywhere. millions of viral load right into your face. Yeah, and you're looking down, giving him encouraging words. And, you know, you're just covered in blacklight material. You, it's can't, you can't have that. Ironic that you mentioned that today because I saw that happen this morning for the first time since I've been going back. And it wasn't even a spot. It was just, it looked like actually 
the odd father-son gym combo, which I hope to not ever be that guy. But they, uh, one was doing the calf raise machine, and the other one was standing in front of him talking, and the guy came up and was like, hey, don't stand there. If it's like a younger son, like they probably still live in the same household. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they rode together. I mean, it looked like a, a minor for sure. You yeah, know, I mean, I guess. Had on the hat with the light and the glove an and example. pickaxe yeah, and everything. Yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, if you think that's bad, just wait until we get to all the jokes I've got queued up for the real part of the episode tonight. Well, should we get to it? That was that was my COVID update. I've now been to two gyms. Neither are checking temperature or forcing any kind of hand cleaning. Or hand anything, you. for that matter, because the locker rooms are closed. Yeah, you know, I think the locker room was... I did but see, the... though, and I think he was by himself, but I did see a guy shooting oh, basketballs no. like, on the basketball court, and I'm like, surely they're not allowing them to play just as long as you sanitize the ball no. between each position <laughs> with between each dribble yeah there the, there the was down. there was credible research today from the cdc that came out that that basically said the virus being transmitted by surfaces is very unlikely and was way overstated early on so even some of these sanitizing efforts are probably extraordinary overkill Pretty much the only way you get it is by being in close contact with a person that has it and they, you know, cough or breathe right in your face and put out a viral load. Um, other, otherwise, the chances of you picking it up on your hand in a high enough concentration and then, you know, putting your finger in your nose or your mouth, um, highly unlikely. So, Tommy, are you saying that, like, all the information we got that first month is wrong? No way. <laughs> What I'm saying is, I am now batting third for Team Hoax, <laughs> and we have opened the season with several decisive victories, not the least of which was some data that came out of Pennsylvania that basically showed in the states that it reopened, the infection rates actually lower than the places that were closed, so the whole stay-at-home experiment essentially did nothing it would have played out exactly the same had we not done that. Did you see the stat that, I don't, I don't remember if it's Pennsylvania or some state released their numbers, and basically if you split the population into those over 85 and those under 80, so obviously there's way more people in the under 80 class, there's more deaths in people over 85 than under 80 of covid so it's almost like people that were going to die anyways actually continued on dying. It's crazy. I, I don't even guys, know what to say. You guys are so insensitive. I, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just speechless by the whole thing. Yeah. Wasn't it like uh, the Pennsylvania figures for people that were under, I don't know, under 60, under 70, there was like 500 deaths or something like that? Oh, it wasn't even near that high. I thought it was. 500 yeah maybe it was 55 and i'm adding an extra five <laughs> yeah what no. i was getting to i didn't know if you were gonna personally call all those families and tell them this was made up or not and tell them that if you look over a three-month period and you take an age group from the age of zero to 60 
that they are very lucky that only yeah a handful of them died when just normal course of life they have like a 10% or a 10 times higher chance of dying tell them that yeah i'd love to <laughs> I mean, you're in healthcare. You're in the position to do it. You know, I don't have the expertise to make that phone call. Yeah, I'd love to call them and tell them all personally. In fact, we could do that live on the podcast right now, except that um, I really think we need to drop everything. And Goodness. Yeah, since, since the infection rate is falling, let's just keep that theme going. Yeah. Yeah, what I think we need to do is just buckle up really tight, clip in. And uh, get right into the uh, into the matter at hand today. You guys need is... to you need to drop this whole joke series. <laughs> this is just a very poorly rigged intro that we've <laughs> put together here. Do we like after this episode? Do we have a show anymore? Because we've been doing four years of Chris Benoit and Owen Hart jokes, and then we will have reviewed the summaries of their lives and deaths after this week i'm trying to figure out where we go from here yeah this the 150 may be it we just it's a nice nice round number it is it's a very but anyway yeah it's a very very uh impressive feat that i would have never thought we would have got to but now i'm getting off topic it's almost like i've stepped out on a ledge and put myself in a precarious position that I can't back away from. We're here to review the... This episode will go on. There may be a few holes here we have to get around, but we will power Uh, through. It's just like, we we just don't want to talk about it. It's like there'll just be this one spot of the show we're just going to kind of work around that part and just we'll have the rest of the show. We're here to review the season finale of this season of Dark Side of the Ring, which was an exploration into the untimely demise of Owen Hart. I have a lot of observations, a lot of notes from the um, episode that we'll talk about. A couple interesting facts. One is this topic's been covered on essentially every wrestling podcast that's ever existed. We're not a wrestling podcast. We are a TV show review podcast. But That's right. This is, to my knowledge, the first time a documentary has ever had the Owen Hart family uh, participate in uh, in the narrative. They have been staunchly opposed to any media or anything to uh, to kind of reopen the wound. So that's why I think this is worth a review because otherwise, there's millions of other people. That's probably an exaggeration. I'm on Team Hoax. There's maybe two other people that have done a <laughs> podcast on this uh, that you could that you could listen to to get a lot of the details leading up in the industry. So we're going to focus around uh, what took place in this hour season finale episode uh, of the Vice Channel's Dark Side of the Ring. So Owen Hart, the youngest of twelve children, I believe it was. Which yes, is pretty Stu. amazing. Stu couldn't keep it in his pants, man. He was putting the sharpshooter on everybody, (laughs) as it were. He was going down into the heart dungeon. Is that what you call it? No, Um, that's really what they called. He had a basement where he trained wrestlers called the heart dungeon. I'm sure he did a little other. (laughs) So 12 kids 
and every kid was either a professional wrestler or married one. Yes. All 12. That's insane. It is. That's a but goal that I think that's a goal that all of us should shoot for with our own families. I like uh, it. Uh, mine, you know, I got two that right now wouldn't uh, protest to a career <laughs> in professional wrestling. Just one of my one of my daughters is not marrying Jim the Animal <laughs> I will not stand for that. Uh, just a couple early observations from the show before we get into um, the flow of the dialogue. I had, uh, you know, I watched, obviously, throughout that era was prime wrestling time for me. I'd forgotten how big Owen and Brett actually were because I always viewed them as little guys for some reason because that was the era of the big men, but they were both very stout young men with... uh, yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty well developed and probably uh, enhanced, artificially enhanced physiques. Yeah, no, I had that exact same note. Um, Brett definitely, he's come out and definitely said he he juiced. I would assume Owen probably did too, but it is funny because Owen was like the, oh, he's a you know quick scrapper that flies around the ring and then. You read his stats, and he's, you know, over, he's, whatever, 6'2", 245. Yeah. yeah he's, it's like, thick. Yeah, he would be a monster compared to, like, you know, Balor and some of the guys, Adam Cole, some of the guys <laughs> they run out there right now. And back then, he was he was seen as tiny. Extremely, extremely mobile for uh, his size, and, and certainly a early on pioneer of the more high-flying style of wrestling, which some of those older clips were fascinating. And the yeah. other big observation I have is um, his wife. I'm interested. I'm interested <laughs> in this story. She's a doctor. And yeah, she's, she's a doctor, very, yes. Very intelligent. But uh, in the world of wrestling spouses and some of the characters that I've seen run through some of these other documentaries, not too bad. Might have done some extra research for the episode <laughs> in Google Images. Not, and, I, uh, and I think I'm I'm uh, just as interested in 2020 as I may have been May of '99. I think 2020 may may be better. I, I know. Was, I agree. I'm, I'm be on that limb uh, limb as well. So. Uh, the first observation I had beyond that the family was family full of wrestlers, um, that they come out from the very beginning and Owen Hart is a very sympathetic figure in this, like not just because we know what's going to happen to him, but just if it never happened to him, like he's just very, very likable. Maybe that's a better way, better way to put it. Like he's not the subject of most of these episodes where the guys have, anger problems or they're they're putting their career they don't even talk to their families or they've got a side piece on the road like he's the exact opposite of all that and his whole mission is maybe to get i guess into his 30s maybe to 40 at the most and get as far away from wrestling as possible just make enough money where he can take care of his family and or maybe she could take over from there because she's a doctor and then he's (laughs) he's out like he was seemed like I'm in this because I'm good at it and probably had a, you know, good coaching and stuff. 
within the family, but I don't think he had a big passion for it. No, and I think uh, another thing along those lines that I've heard, you know, other wrestlers talk about in, you know, their interviews is Owen was <laughs> like <laughs> some of the stories we've heard about Ric Flair on the road. Owen was the exact opposite, not only with the women, but he was very frugal. Like, because as Glenn mentioned, his goal was to save up money and then just get out of it. And he was so frugal to the point where he would, like cities they went to a lot, he would meet fans. And then when they went back to that city, he would stay in their house with them to save money on hotels. Oh, wow. Like he was, yeah, he was like a personable guy and he'd make these little connections. Like, oh, we're going to be in, you know, Hartford. Hey, can I come stay with you? And they, you know, of course, they're fans. They loved it. And yeah, like that was not uncommon for him to just, you know, stay in people's houses. Tell me that wouldn't wow. be a dream of ours right now. <laughs> just to say, have the revival staying with us <laughs> for an extended period of time. <laughs> Would be so great, just because they're little, they're a little frugal. I'm like, ah, oh, we got an extra room, you know? Why not? Why not? I will say, Point Break Dave would be like, I've got that. several extra rooms and two gym memberships, so whatever you need, <laughs> Owen, true. I can accommodate we can make, you. Yeah. We can make it happen. Before we get into the the you know meat of the episode, I also wanted to say, I've watched. I think there's one episode I haven't watched yet. Man, well. First, Chris Jericho, once they started him kind of narrating, that helped the show a ton. Men, Jim Cornette is amazing in these. Like, all his cutaway interviews, he's so good in these. He still can't help himself but to get bleeped out a few times, though. That guy cannot function without dropping F-bombs. Like, it is not possible. It's especially true when Vince Russo's name comes up. (laughs) He seems to control himself until that Vince is in the mix and then he just loses it. Cause I know one of the episodes, uh, I can't remember which one it was. It might've been the brawl for all episode where he goes on this, uh, this rant about, uh, his, the whole point of his life is he needs to outlive Vince Russo so he can piss on his grave. And he, t- he told his wife that I don't care if I'm in a wheelchair or whatever. You just push me out there to his grave. That's the last thing I'm going to do before I die is I'm going to piss all over his grave. <laughs> and Vince Russo's like, I don't even know why this guy's mad at me. Like, I don't really even like wrestling anymore. Like, I'm just trying to live my life. And he's obsessed. So great. That's so great. And Cornette was not a fan of any kind of stunt or adding elements to wrestling that didn't follow more traditional guidelines. So he was very outspoken in every one of his cutaways in this just about, it was ridiculous that they were even doing this kind of an entrance or stunt in general, not even taking into account what they get into later about, you know, perhaps the slipshod way it was done. They, uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is, is they're kind of, they're doing a good job, as you mentioned, painting a picture of Owen as a sympathetic character, but then as they're kind of narrating him getting ready to depart for, for Kansas city. They, I feel like this has to be a hindsight embellishment when they talk about, you know, how he acted at the airport that day and, you know, telling his son to take care of his family and they could tell something was weighing heavy on his mind. 
I think that stuff you all go you go back in and add to the story later. Uh, you can't you yeah. can't tell me there's a a premonition because if there really is, you don't get up on the you don't ever get up and do the stunt, right? No, I think I think a lot of that is you know he had his son and then a younger daughter and a wife and that was it. I think that's a common thing to do if you have an eldest son. Like, hey, I'm you know on a business trip, take care of things at home. I think that's something you say every time, probably. Yeah, and he probably didn't, you know, kids are that young. You just kind of, for the most part, you don't want to leave for two, three days or whatever at a time, unless you're going to do something really fun. But I mean, if it's for say, work. Speak, speak for yourself. Yeah, if been, it's for work. I've been quarantined here for two and a half months. <laughs> I, might, I might go do that stunt <laughs> if you get me out of the house. <laughs> But yeah, I I had some doubts about that too, you know. Um, I'm sure he said something to his son, and the other thing is, of course, he's going to hold on to that. That's the last thing his dad ever said to him, you know. So whether he embellishes that, he's just going to hold it in very high esteem, no matter what. So he's, even if it was the case, he's not going to be like, yeah. So I drove with him to the airport, and the weird situation of he rode with his dad to the airport, and like his grandpa just happened to be landing at the same time so he would ride back with him just a weird situation but he's not going to be like yeah dad dropped me off and he was getting on the plane he just said later man and that was it you know <laughs> yeah. that, that's not going to be in the episode yeah he's like hey uh you know get that rb bag out of the car when you get home <laughs> <laughs> i do feel uh-huh. like his actual last words were fairly famous so at least he has that yeah yeah, well, was, we'll get we'll get, get there. there. No, I, well, get there I'm later. not I'm not I'm not uh, jumping ahead to the end or anything. Is there so, anything else uh, like just his wrestling background, character, that type of stuff you want to get into? No, I mean it. It just kind of goes to you know he. Uh, this was uh, after the you know Montreal screw job, so um, a lot of his career even though he was i guess he probably mixed in a short baby face run at some point but owen was more or less always a a heel brett for the majority of his uh career was a baby face so you know they feuded with each other but they were always there like you know the two of them and davy boy smith and jim Nightheart, they were all in the wwf for the majority of that time but after the Montreal screw job, basically everyone, Brett left, uh, British Bulldog and Nightheart. I don't know if they, well, they left that they day. Realized they realized that Nightheart couldn't wrestle and <laughs> had you zero talent. Give us, give us a daughter that can't do much either. Um, <laughs> but, uh, All right. so yeah, Owen was then, you know, he was the last of the heart extended family in the WWF. And they kind of talk about how creative just really didn't know what to do with him because yeah. they were going with a lot of edgier storylines. And if they wanted to put him in some kind of, especially if it was some kind of uh, sexual storyline, like he wouldn't do it because he didn't want that with his family. And basically and in were... that era, every storyline was a sexual storyline. There was very few that weren't. Oh, yeah, this was height of the Attitude Era. And then, yeah, so that's kind of 
what prompted them to when he first came in he did a masked character called the blue blazer and the bit was uh he would come back as that and it was kind of like a you know comedy like everyone knew it was Owen Hart but he would constantly say it wasn't and uh you know he'd occasionally like you know there was a lot of like kind of vignettes in there where that was the comedy piece of you know, him talking about the blue blazer as a different person and all that stuff. Something Jim yeah, Ross seemed... said that I thought was also interesting about that era. And this is, of course would have been what would have happened or what it would have transpired, you know, right after he passed away was when stone cold and the rock and, and triple H and these, these just mega stars of that era were just starting to come into their own and Owen being such a great wrestler, just Jim Ross saying, you know, Owen would have been right there alongside him had he not died because he would have been in the mix to have just, you know, absolutely classic feuds with all those guys. And we really were cheated out of that, uh, yeah. you know, be, because of his death. And, and he never, you know, he never had ascended to that level. You know, he was right below that level. But the thinking was those guys would have all needed heel, a heel to work with and he would have been perfect and could have just, could have just absolutely made him um, you know, just a megastar for whatever time he wanted to, to remain in the business. So on, on that point, cause I did a lot of, uh, research outside of the show. Um, and I found this was really fun or I guess funny is the wrong world. Really interesting was, so the go home edition of Monday night raw. So, you know, five, six days before over the edge, um, back then they would have true, dark matches right like now you go and they have a early match but it's for 205 live or something like back then they just had straight matches that no one ever saw to kind of get the crowd going and the go home the first match in front of the live crowd that night was owen hart versus his first match in the wwe kurt angle like when he was first coming up and the story is that owen finished the match, you know, not televised, walked back through the curtain and told everyone at Gorilla, that guy's going to be world champion one day about Kurt Angle and walked off. Wow. I've never heard that story. Yeah. So hopefully Kurt Angle didn't come back behind the curtain and be like, this guy will be dead tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness. Wow. What What a... What an angle that would be. <laughs> wow. It so, might be a bit of a leap, but, you know. So that was a common theme, just talking about his wrestling career, that they didn't really know exactly what to do with him. They had this blue blazer character, and it was intended to be, at least initially, kind of goofy. Yeah. And they had him repelling or you know lowered down from the rafters at several events, but they had the very... Uh, you know, sturdy setup where it's just the uh, carabiner. Is that the word? Yeah. But it's like attached to something that's wrapped around, like attached basically to his back. So he's hanging, he's just hanging there like helpless. And then someone would have to unhook it. So it's almost meant to be more of uh, almost a comedic effect anyway. But for this pay-per-view, they wanted to make it a little more, a little more serious. Yes. They succeeded. Yeah, for sure. But I think they were trying to mirror what Sting was doing. Is that right? 
Yeah, but, and that's but one for thing the cause... record, though, Sting did have people unhook him. They just did a very good job of shooting around it. He didn't. He didn't like Ooh. magically drop off the rappelling line. Like he was unhooked. Man, I feel like I remember occasionally Sting, especially like when it was essentially a run-in, <laughs> but he would come from the ceiling where he's like you know, getting involved in a brawl, man, I feel like he would drop and then he himself would just quickly grab something and then he was unhooked. But we may have to go to footage on that, but I I believe when I was watching them and them talking about, okay, he has this, you know, whatever rope and when he hits, he pulls it and then he's loose. I was like, man, I feel like that's what Sting did, but maybe, maybe I'm misremembering. But in any case, for this particular event, they were looking for a way for him to be able to yes. kind of make this drop in and and then be ready to go um, pretty quickly. And this was different than what they had done. As Glenn said before, it was always a he was tethered, which they actually used as him. You know, one time they were shown footage where he was like still <laughs> three feet off the ground and just getting waylaid <laughs> like a pinata. <laughs> And they also, and they did, they they definitely mentioned this on the episode, but other podcasts I've listened to went into much greater detail on this. But they, the the rigging crew, I guess, or company they were using was not necessarily the best and brightest, nor had they sent somebody that I would consider to be highly qualified to do a stunt like this. I think when when they talked about who WCW was using for Sting, it was it was a very reputable outfit that you know had safety protocols in place and a long history of doing this. Where I feel like the the at least in, in the lawsuit, the thinking was WWE might have kind of cheaped out and went with somebody that just kind of eyeballed the whole thing and said, "Oh yeah, this ought to work." Yeah, I think uh, I can't remember if it was in this episode or something I listened to today um, that even mentioned that there was someone else that was a, a candidate to do the job, but when they were showed like, Hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to use to rig it all up and lower it down. That someone looked at it and said, I don't want to be any part of this. This isn't the way I would do it. And I don't want the, I don't want the risk. So it was very, I think it was the low dollar. It was like if a pandemic had wiped out almost all the rigging crew, but the only one left was like a group in Korea that we watch at four thirty in the morning every day. <laughs> Got to watch out for those guys. <clears throat> the uh, the the item that I thought was interesting. Hold on, real quick before we move on. I and I don't obviously you don't know what would have happened, but it seems weird that they were so preoccupied with getting the quick release, considering it was just a match. Like, it wasn't like he was, you know, interfering in this big... It's like he was going to be announced, he was going to come in the ring. Like, why can't the referee or somebody, like, right. hook him? And it's not the... Yeah, it was, it was an announced match, so it's not like a surprise. It's not yeah. the main event. It's not, you know, the equivalent... Him being lowered from the ceiling is not like the the equivalent of like the undertaker walking in. Like if you mess with it, the crowd, I mean, nobody's going to care. Exactly. They just wanted it to look cool. Yeah. But the, the item that was uh, at issue here was the clip that was used 
um, to connect him to the harness. And what they said was it was something that was not typically used in rock climbing or rappelling, which is what they would have used normally, but it was a, an item that they use in sailing to lower uh, and raise, I guess, the sail on the mast. And um, what one of the things that was strange was uh, Owen's wife in the episode, like, had the clip <laughs> and yeah. was, you know, handling it, and like, yeah, here's how it works. And I was like, God, that, that's kind of, like, macabre a little bit to be, like, yeah, here's, the, here's literally the item that was responsible for my husband's death, and she's just showing you how little pressure you have to put on it to activate it. Yeah, and I think she had, I mean, once the police investigation was over, and certainly I would assume she would need to gather a lot of that evidence to support her her lawsuit, you know, against the WWF back then. But, uh, yeah, she had everything. She had uh, evidence taken from that night. I uh, heard where she still has his luggage that he took for the trip that apparently had never been unpacked from the suitcase like he had guess gone to the hotel just like dropped it off and i don't know if she's like never opened it or anything like that but apparently the guys that made this episode said in an interview that she just has like the suitcase he checked in with with all of his clothes still in it is just sitting in that same room with all the evidence and the the clip they used to to attach him at the in the rafters wow which is crazy and i don't know that they ever definitively proved what caused the fall. I think the speculation was it was the clip, but there are people um, that I've listened to in research that, that claim that he was just never hooked up correctly to begin with. And he essentially just jumped and didn't realize he wasn't hooked. It wasn't like a, you know, there was a tangle and the clip malfunctioned. So, you know, well, I think the, I think there's some debate on on how it actually transpired. And I don't know that it necessarily matters because it's negligent no matter which way it went down. The a lo- another popular story that I've heard on a few wrestlers tell is. And of course, if there is footage of it, it's, you know, no one has seen it, but they the story they tell is the way they were doing this is they essentially hook him up and then he would swing over the rafter and essentially just be hanging there for like a minute or so. And then they would lower him. Right. So he's, he's fully supported by the, you know, rigging for a while, just free, you know, just hanging out and then they drop him. And the story that the other story i've heard from several people is he was out hanging like it was quote unquote working and he was while he was hanging there he was adjusting the cape and feather boa and all that and released it yeah that's what i've that's the theory that i that i heard was that they wanted him to they're lowering him down and then they wanted him to you know it was all about the look and the appearance of this and he had to, he was supposed to like hold his arm up in a certain way or whatever, I guess probably on the cable, kind of like Sting did. And, um, but he also had the cape and everything. And that's the theory I heard was that he was adjusting that. And during the course of that, basically he just either, either accidentally grabbed where the clip was or just hit it. And it had such an easy release on it that that was, that that was it. The, 
next part of the documentary kind of covers, and they, they talk to the referee that was in the ring and Jim Ross, who was sitting ringside. But nobody obviously is expecting this. Nobody's paying attention to what's going up ahead. There's a promo video for the match that's rolling. The referee's clearing some debris from the ring. Uh, by people that were close to the ring's testimony, o- Owen's essentially last words were him shouting for the referee to get out of the way so that he didn't take him with him. He that hits, was yeah, a tough watch. He hits the ring, and you know the referee realizes immediately, obviously, something's horribly wrong, but still having difficulty getting uh, word that we need medical personnel because this is the whole wrestling boy who cried wolf thing where you have to be like no 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 this is not part of the show this is real we need real medical people yeah i i think uh you know it's bad enough to fall at least 80 feet but i believe he landed like chest first on the corner yeah like on the turnbuckle like i don't know if he just lands straight to the mat if that helps him at all survival rate wise, or if he hits the ropes and like kind of bounds across the ring somehow. But when he lands on the post, like he's, he's done. But it's hard to say, um, you know, exactly what would have been the best way, but the, the, the height was so dramatic. I, I think there's probably not a scenario where he has much of a, much of any chance well, as this is all unfolding, they're still live on pay-per-view, and there's so much chaos that's going on that they're not feeding the announcers any information. They're not sure what actually, to say. I have uh, JR's book, which I'm reading. Oh, well, well, and, and it's apparently autographed. So it it's, is. Con- congratulations on your success. Because, I, because I, on the on the JR end, as far as like when he fell, because I there was what was in this episode was different from what I'd heard him talk about before, because this one, he said that he calls everything just looking at his monitor, which is not unusual. But from what I'd heard him interviewed about this before was he was looking in the monitor and basically just saw the end of the fall while he was looking at his monitor in the episode. He said he's sitting there looking at the monitor and then Lawler kind of elbows him real quick and points up. And he says, he looks up and sees probably the last like 15 to 20 feet of his fall and sees him land, even though it's dark in the arena. I mean, he can see at least the silhouette silhouette outline of his body hitting the ring. Well, he, in his book and he says basically kind of in between that, he says, you know, he was looking at the monitor and happened to look up and saw a blur and didn't really put it together, obviously, because you're not expecting that. And that's when the king elbowed him and because they didn't know if their mics were on, he mouthed to the king, he's fallen. And then, or the king mouthed the JR. And then the king actually gets up and goes to the ring yeah, um, to check on him. But so, I mean, there's a few interesting things. I won't read all of it, but, you know, uh, JR as Tommy was saying, they're, they're kind of shooting the crowd. They don't know what to do. They put the camera on JR and JR's doing the, uh, you know, Hey, I want to inform you, you know, we're here to entertain, but, um, there's a tragic event has just happened and that was supposed to be, you know, an entrance from the ceiling. And this is not part of the show. He keeps, he says that several times. 
but the part of the book I wanted to read, and he does talk about it on this episode, but I thought the book said it well. As Tommy was saying, uh, JR and the King are kind of, they're on an island out there. Like they can, you know, normally people in the back are communicating through their headset, but now everyone in the back is focused on, you know, EMTs and Owen and no one is talking to them at all. Um, so he goes, uh, let me read this here. Um, so this is after the EMTs have taken Owen out. He's like, the show kept going. Matches happened. The show was a runaway train. The King and I were on an island by ourselves. No one was talking to us. Neither of us knew what was happening. It was all a blur. I heard the voice of the producer in my headset. JR said, Kevin Dunn, we're going back to you. You have to give an update on Owen. I pressed my callback button so I could reply, Kevin, I don't know what the update is, I said. He replied, Owen is dead. We're back in 10, 9, 8, 7. Wow. And then, and then they put him on live TV with the camera in his face. And I was surprised so, when they showed that clip. And I, I just, I guess I remember he was very blunt when he announced it. There was no yeah. softening it. And, you know, you would think, especially in today's day and age, I mean, I mean, look how long it took him to announce that Ryan Newman was dead after Daytona. I mean, it was like days. You would think that they would have just played it as, hey, you know, Owen's been transported to a medical facility and our thoughts and prayers are with him and we'll update you and not said that right in the middle of the show. Yeah, it just seemed believe. that just seemed like a really hasty uh, rush, you know, to get that information out. I, I mean, the first bad decision is to finish the show, um, even though I it seems like the authorities should have shut the whole thing down at that point. Because yeah, because that's know. that's essentially a potential crime scene at that point. Exactly. So you know, we don't know if somebody pushed him. So it, it seems like the the Kansas City police should have stepped in and said, "We're we're done here." Um, Do you think yeah, finishing the show is what Owen would have wanted? No. <laughs> I want to tell, tell you this. guys right now: if I die during the podcast, don't finish it. It's not what I wanted. <laughs> I want you to stop. Okay? Can we just be very clear on that? I never. <laughs> What's funny is, like, obviously, you know, being a wrestling fan, I've looked into this many times. I had never thought about that until watching this show. Like I've thought about, should they have stopped it? Should they have kept it going many times just from like, what should Vince's call have been? I never thought about the police shutting it down. And then like you, once you hear that, you're like, yeah, like why didn't they? That should have. <laughs> right. Because I mean, even if it, there, it wasn't, a murder there, there could still be you know criminally negligent homicide there could be a lot of different things that could have happened in charges against the the people operating the rigging yeah. against wwe you and would yeah you would feel like i mean I, i've heard of situations at just local dirt tracks where if there's a fatal accident they they do a police investigation yeah you know it's like i mean obviously it's a little you know it's kind of different, but it's in a lot of ways, it's very similar. If you go to, you know, Cirque du Soleil and someone dies falling off a trapeze, they're like, all right, let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah. That's what work. Sebastian would have wanted. <laughs> work, work around that. We'll get it. Boy, they uh, had to. That was, 
that was stuff I didn't expect to see were the uh, the police photos from high above the rafter looking down. That was creepy and then stuff. Just various angles where you you know you can they had the one close up where you could see where the the I guess the boards that are underneath the mat were busted or bent or whatever. But then yeah, there's two like clear spots where it's it's obviously blood and there's enough that you can see it from the ceiling vantage point so like up close that's a pretty large area that and they and they know i mean the wrestlers were like when they brought him through and the emts he was his skin was blue by that point like they knew he was gone and then they had to go out there yeah and how rough was it um because jeff jarrett is apparently like he was a pretty good friend with Owen uh, in real life. And like their panic of, you know, what do we do right after it happened? Cause we can't shoot the ring. They cut to him in like a live promo and he has to do his, you know, promo and then go out there and stand in the, in the ring with the, and not, Oh man, that's just rough. It's just so rough. Not as rough one, I guess, as the the news that that Vince and then ultimately a, the medical doctor had to deliver to Owen Hart's wife. But then I, you know, it was the toughest part watching this. His death is obviously tragic, but when they're just talking about his wife getting the news and being inconsolable, and then walking upstairs and shutting the door and telling her seven year old and three year old that their yeah. dad's not coming home. That's a real... That was a tough watch. That was a tough watch. It was also tough because, and I actually will talk about this to end on a lighter note, is Owen Hart was known as quite the prankster, which included uh, impersonations and prank phone calls. And when Vince calls Martha to give her the news, she thinks it's Owen doing a Vince voice. like Right. And you're like... That gum pal. <laughs> Like, is there is there a worse thing to think was a joke at first? If y'all ever get a phone call and they say it's Vince McMahon, it's it really is him. It's not me. <laughs> so you know that. So there, then, <laughs> there was a uh, lawsuit that followed this. Um, so Martha, Owen's wife, and oh yeah, WWE ultimately settled this lawsuit without it going to trial, which I think was probably a very good call on their end. And the number that I had seen reported was $18 million. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was, um, I mean, they want, it's the right move from a corporate perspective to settle it um, and not have it go to trial. I mean, you're risking more damages, but also more bad PR. But it's kind of a good move on their part that they settled it and the terms of settlement were released. Because I think when you get that whole, well, they settled, but everything's confidential, you know, I, I think it was good that they showed that they, you know, as best they could, they compensated and tried to take care of the family. From, from what I understand, Vince came out and offered her 17, and I think she wanted 30, and they ultimately settled on 18. Yeah, and I think so. They don't want anything to do with WWE now, so they've declined many offers. You know, to have Owen 
put into the Hall of Fame or any kind of memorial. And it, and it sure seems like the family, at least the way they were portrayed in this documentary, have done a lot of really good things in his memory. It looks like they've invested some of the money in, in helping people in the community, both his kids, at least the son for sure, the daughter maybe not so much, seemed pretty well squared away. He's a lawyer now. The daughter that kind of gave the vague, like, well, she's pursuing a career in art, which basically means she's living at home with a degree. But, you know, at least uh, at least they uh, at least they've made it that far, which is, you know, if you watched the episode on Bruiser Brody, you know, the kids he had looked like they hadn't left their basement in 20 years. So it seems like right. it, it seems like the family's doing well. The wife, you know, at some point went back and and, uh, you know, also got in. I, I'm assuming medical doctor. I don't I don't know if they ever clarified that no they never she's said a what phd type. walking around telling people she's a doctor then i might right. yeah might have I, a I did notice carabiner i need her to check out but <laughs> the uh um at the funeral she had the statement of uh i'm not bitter or angry but there will be a day of reckoning and i'm like if there's a day of reckoning you are both bitter and angry yes the the and, and, the shots of the funeral were amazing. The and of course the Canadian fans quick. are crazy, but they turned out so many people for this thing. Yeah, you know, in the funeral when she said that, Vince was like, it's "Pretty good, pretty good name for a pay per view day of reckoning." <laughs> he took a, a brief break to he busted out the Palm Pilot, just kind of wrote that down. He was like, "I know my last one over the edge didn't work out." Yeah, I mean the. The just sheer coincidence and or irony that that was the name of the event, I, I I still don't understand how that could be possible. Yeah, but go ahead, Tommy. Talk about the funeral because that was impressive. No, I mean they they showed the processional, the you know of just you know limousine after limousine, and the streets were just lined. I mean, it looked it looked like what you would see for a sports team's championship parade. The people that turned out. Um, in the community, of course, you know, tons of the WWE wrestlers were there. Um, and I'm trying to recall, and I, I don't remember for sure, but I don't think Jim Ross was able to go because they were doing it on a night. There was a show, and I think he had to work. So yeah, there were, you know, there were some notable absences of people that really wanted to be there that didn't make it. There was a, uh, in some of the research I did, uh, there's a real funny story that X-Pac tells about the funeral. And he said, like, you know, he was there, obviously, you know, Triple H, a lot of them all went to the funeral. And uh, it was outside. I guess the service was outside. I don't know if it was the whole thing was outside or if this was like the graveside. <laughs> he said the the minister doing the service was like this. 90 plus year old like old southern black preacher and he said he just like it was you know 90 degrees and the guy just talked forever and like they were all just pouring sweat in their suits and then i don't know if it was later that day or the next day someone's like i think owen ribbed us one last time <laughs> with that preacher which was pretty great. So uh, Vince didn't come off too great in this because they didn't get into much about the settlement within the episode. They may have mentioned it, but they didn't 
you know, go into great detail. They just had the one clip at the press conference, which I assume was, you know, days after the tragedy. And the, the reporter did ask kind of a sarcastic question, kind of a leading kind of a, Hey, you didn't even make sure this guy was safe. Did you? And, uh, he, he fires back pretty, he didn't appreciate the question. He said, you're a big jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, this was not, not Vince did not come across in a good light here. And I mean, honestly, like (laughs) I'm a fan of Vince McMahon, but how, how could you like the, the rigging crew most likely was not top notch. And then, he proceeded with the event. There's not really a good way to spin any of that. No, that's just decisions were made. And I think you just, in the moment, that's what you thought was best, but he's not the type. I don't think that after the fact says, Hey, I was wrong. I think he's just gonna, the chips are already in, man. He's not, he's, he's leaning into it. So, uh, was there anything else on the episode, or do we want to end with a few lighthearted Owen stories? Yeah, let's. Well, let's, the, uh, the only thing I had one other thing was just with the lawsuit. Like the a lot of maybe not the rest of the Hart family, but a bunch of them were against Owen's wife suing the WWF, and even tried to sabotage her case by giving some of her evidence to the defense. Yeah, just well, so sorry. Just yeah, makes no sense. But I, I, but I am, yeah, I am glad that cooler heads prevailed and they were able to settle that without having to go through it. But yeah, Dave, bring the room back up. All right, so I I did some research on some funny uh, funny uh, Owen stories. Obviously, he was well known for pranks and. That sort of thing. He had one funny. It was actually him and uh, Davy Boy Smith who apparently teamed up quite a bit. But there was one where they were at an arena, and obviously there was local police there providing security, like outside the arena. Well, Owen and Davy Boy Smith for some reason had water guns, <laughs> and they. Uh, like got in a position like up in the parking garage where they could shoot down at the police officers. And so they were just doing it like, you know, for 30 minutes and they were getting annoyed, but they didn't know who did it. And then they come walking around like Owen and Davey put the guns away, the water guns and they come walking around and they see the cops and they're kind of looking up there and they're like, Oh, was, was Lex up there shooting you? He's been doing that all day. (laughs) So blaming Lex Luger. And the the whole bit of the the prank was, the the cops were like, well, we'd like to talk to him, and they're like, oh well, he's in this car. You should you should get him when he leaves the arena, knowing that apparently Lex was well known for like running stop signs and stoplights. So they're like, ah, oh, this will be funny. <laughs> so when they're leaving the arena, they like, hey Lex, can we ride with you? <laughs> so. They get in the car and they're, you know, driving away. And I guess it was like a more or less unmarked police car, like pulls, like, you know, speeds up to get behind him. And Owen's in the backseat and he turns around and he's like, oh, that's Shawn Michaels. He wants to race. <laughs> <laughs> so Lex steps on it and, of course, you know, gets pulled over. And uh, I thought that one was pretty funny. But um, 
he had another another one they did on Lex. This was Owen by himself. Was when Owen was tagging with Yokozuna. They did a lot of matches against Lex Luger and the British Bulldog, who are you know both big powerhouse guys. Well, obviously Owen's in there flying around because Yokozuna's not going to work a long match. And what he would do is like the bulldog would be in there and, you know, he would just bump around for him. He'd let the bulldog gorilla press him, you know, he'd jump up and then Lex Luger would get in there and he'd just dead weight him on everything. So Luger would try to pick him up and just couldn't and just come across looking real weak. (laughs) But my favorite one, and this is the last one, was after WrestleMania 10. And WrestleMania 10 was Owen versus Brett and that whole brother versus brother feud. And Owen won. And Owen won, that's right. And so after that, the house show loop, which was their big business back then, they main evented. Like every house show was Brett versus Owen, kind of the return match from uh, WrestleMania. And they were doing a big loop through Canada. And Brett was obviously going over in all these matches. And, you know, he was the hero. So after the match, you know, he'd go to all four corners and kind of after Brett won and kind of walk around the ring and, you know, say, you know, celebrate essentially. So Owen, like before going out to the match, goes to uh, Sean Waltman, who was X-Pac or probably one, two, three kid at this point. And he's like, hey, man, he's like, uh, when you know, because they knew how long the match would take, he's like, when we're getting to the finish of our match, he's like, grab my bag, get in the car, and have it running. <laughs> so Owen's out there, and at some point before the crowd got there, he put a bucket full of like sardines under the ring, and he rolls out near the end of the match, dunks his hand in there, grabs a whole bunch of them, rolls back in the ring grabs Brett, who I guess was, you know, down selling something, shoves a whole handful in his mouth <laughs> and then puts him in a cobra clutch so he can't spit him out. Wow. And, you know, Brett, like, has it all over his face. He has to swallow him because he can't do oh. anything. And then he said, like, they were halfway to the hotel. Like, as soon as the match was Owen, Owen slid out, ran to the car, and before Brett walked through the curtain, they were, like, already to the hotel. Wow. That is awesome. So you can... uh, She won't let him be inducted into the Hall of Fame or anything, but I believe uh, there are... I don't know if it's through, you know, a website that's in Owen Hart's name or through, like, ProWrestlingTees.com. But you can get Owen Hart merchandise, and it all goes to the Owen Hart Foundation. So, hey. There you go. A little t-shirt. Yeah. A good cause. That's, yeah. that's good for everybody. Everybody wins. There you go. Enjoy Drop the positive spin. Huh. I, I guess so. I, I, I'm not making those jokes anymore. This was the, the line of demarcation this episode. There's no more Owen Hart rafter falling jokes. Yeah. We're gonna have to move. We're gonna have to move on after this episode. So, I suppose tune in next week to see if we still have a podcast. But there are Fair. still a few ideas floating around out there. So I would say the chances are pretty good that uh, there will be an episode one fifty one. I guess until then, just check your harnesses.
falling far. 